Well, this morning we continue our journey through the gospel according to Matthew, which many have called the gospel of the kingdom. Matthew himself says that, and we're in chapter 19. So if you're using one of our Bibles, it's page 774. I encourage you to go ahead and turn there. And just to overview where we've been in Matthew, John the Baptist comes on the scene and he begins preaching the gospel of the kingdom in chapter three. And it's the same message that Jesus would preach in chapter four. And that is repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. Change your mind, drop your agenda because God's rule is coming. What's that mean is that God's taking back control of his world just like he promised he always would. Through Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is the arrival of God's sovereign, saving, heavenly rule on earth. And that earth part's really important. It's not just pie in the sky. It says we just sing. It says we pray. May your will be done. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And so God is extending his kingship on earth through the rule of Jesus. God's bringing all things under the authority of Jesus. That's his plan. That's his purpose. That's what we're called to do, right? This is the way this gospel ends in the great commission. It starts in verse 18. We often start in verse 19. But you've got to have the great announcement before the great commission. And Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go as you go and make disciples of all nations and teach them to obey everything King Jesus taught. That's the great commission. It's how the kingdom spreads. As we learn in Matthew 13, slowly but surely. So God has installed Jesus as king, and now his people, us, we put that rule into the real world. We put it into effect, in other words. And so what does it look like when Jesus is king? What does it look like when Jesus becomes king? Well, naturally, the values of the kingdom will look different than the values of the world. And so that's why Jesus has to re-educate his people in the first century and has been doing the same for 2,000 years. We need re-education in the kingdom values. So last week, we looked at marriage and divorce, Matthew 19, 1 to 9. And this week, we'll talk singleness, 19, 10 to 12, and then part B. On Friday afternoon, I realized this was two sermons, not one. So we'll come back next week and look more specifically at how to find a spouse. But today, what does singleness look like for kingdom people? Here at Southside, we talk a lot about the family for a couple reasons. One primarily is the Bible does, but another has to do with our particular philosophy of ministry. In other words, why we do what we do here at Southside. We don't talk a lot about it. You get a feel for it, but I think it's helpful for you to know that one of the things we do is we actually seek to topple idols like Elijah. We try to demonstrate the bankruptcy of the current idols by teaching and modeling a better way. Each generation has various cultural idols. They change And lots of churches, probably a majority of churches, just avoid those. We don't want to go there. Don't want to cause offense. Often people will get mad when we start poking on idols. It hurts to get kicked in the idols. (laughs) They're usually controversial. But here, we want to go after them, actually. We want to charge them. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Gates are defensive. That means the church is to be offensive. And so we don't want to tiptoe around the current cultural idols. We want to seek to topple them. We take the approach of St. Boniface. You know, St. Boniface, eighth century Englishman, Anglo-Saxon missionary, went to the Germanic lands. There's all kinds of paganism, all kinds of false gods. And there was one particular god, Donner, also to us probably more popularly known as Thor. And they worshiped Thor. And the way they would worship Thor was this big oak tree. Some say this is where the Christmas tree ultimately came from. I don't know if that's right or not, but they would worship the tree and they would come and they'd bring offerings and various sacrifices to the tree. 
and you didn't touch the tree, you didn't mess with the tree, if you harmed the tree, then Thor would strike you down with lightning or worse. Well, Boniface and his crew of missionaries come in, and eventually they gather around old Donner's Oak, Thor's tree, gather the people around, take out the axe, chop, chop. Not only that, they use the wood from Thor's oak tree to build a Christian chapel. That's the way we want to roll around Southside. False worship has to be removed before true worship can occur. And man, our culture today wars against marriage and children. So that's one of the reasons we talk about it a lot. And we'll continue to champion the family. But listen, championing the family is not idolizing the family. We will continue to prioritize the family of God. And Jesus dignifies marriage and Jesus dignifies singleness. Both are divine gifts. Both come with unique blessings and unique challenges. So what does he say about singleness? Well, it's not really accurate to just say singleness, which is why I want to talk more next week about a certain class, because there really are three categories, right? There are those that are too young, single, but they're too young to consider marriage. So middle school, high school, freshman in college after that, let the reader understand. Probably should be marrying sooner than later than we do in our culture. But there's too young, then there are some that who desire to be married, but God has, for whatever reason, not opened that door yet. And then there are those who have been given the gift of celibacy. So let's see what King Jesus has to say. Remember last time we looked at chapter 19, verse 1 to 9, and Jesus affirmed, quoting Genesis 2, that marriage from the beginning was between one man and one woman for a lifetime. What God has joined together, yoked together, do not let man separate. But he did say that divorce would be allowable in the rare exception of sexual immorality. That was in verse nine. So divorce is not God's will. There's this exception, this allowance in verse nine. And then we pick it up now in verse 10. Matthew 19, verse 10. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. So here the disciples show their hard-heartedness. Remember earlier he said that Moses had allowed divorce for their hard-heartedness. They're saying, wait, 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 hold on. If, if I can't divorce for just any reason, I'm, I'm out. Can't go there. Marriage is only attractive if divorce is easy for the hard-hearted. Because marriage is hard, especially for self-centered people like the disciples continually show themselves to be. Look at verse 11. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. So Jesus says, not marrying, as the disciples say, it's better not to marry. Jesus says, not marrying, that is an option. But it's an option not given to everyone. That language of giving and receiving. And Jesus then mentions eunuchs, castrated people. It's a little bit weird. We had family worship last night. and encourage you to do that, especially on Saturday nights. Bust out the Bible and talk about the passage that we will come here to hear. It's helpful to have a head start in that way. And say, All right, this is a little bit weird as I sought to explain eunuchs to my family. Those who are castrated. There are eunuchs by birth. 
Unix by force and Unix by choice, Jesus says. Some people are Unix by birth. They're born with, with birth defects. Today, we would call that intersex. Very, very, very rare biological abnormality. So there are eunuchs from birth, born with birth defects, and there are eunuchs by force, eunuchs made by men, a very unfortunate situation. In our culture, thankfully, it's almost non-existent, unlike in the ancient world where it was quite common. And then there are eunuchs by choice, those who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom is what Jesus says. Translations that aren't quite so literal paraphrase it a little bit. What are eunuchs made themselves eunuchs? Well, the NIV says those who've chosen to live like eunuchs. The NLT says some choose not to marry for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So they don't even use the word eunuch, but those who choose not to marry. And Jesus is not talking about literal castration here. Making yourself a eunuch is hyperbole, as Jesus often does. Remember cutting off a hand, plucking out an eye. The third century church history in Eusebius records that Origen, really sharp guy, a little bit Gnostic, but he was a Christian, Origen of Alexandria, took this verse literally and busted out the knife. A very unfortunate interpretive mistake if there ever was one. Jesus is talking about people who have voluntarily renounced marriage. They've voluntarily chosen celibacy for the sake of the kingdom. Paul unpacks this even more. So flip over, keep your finger in Matthew 19, but flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 for this third category of making oneself a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom. First Corinthians chapter seven, verse six. Chapter seven, verse six, the Holy Spirit through the apostle Paul says, now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Just like Jesus, he says it's only for those to whom it is given. Paul says each has his gift. Jesus con concludes his section by saying, let the one who is able to receive this receive it. It's not for everyone, but it is given to some. Some do receive this special empowerment. So to speak of the gift of celibacy is to assume that marriage is the norm for most, but God has given some the ability and maybe even the inclination to be an exception to the norm. So while maybe not the norm, celibacy is not second class. It's not JV. Jesus dignifies both. Paul elevates singleness. We'll see why. So we want to ask, well, how do I know? How do I know if I have the gift? Of celibacy or not, well, simply put, to use the language here of 1 Corinthians 7, you don't burn with passion. I think sometimes we can overinterpret that phrase, though. It doesn't mean there's no passion, no desire whatsoever. If you do have this gift, that does not mean there will never be struggle, there'll never be tension, there'll never be this wrestling. The gift is not singleness itself, but the ability to be single and not distressed by it to become content in it. And then Paul in this same chapter, he speaks of the advantages of being single, the advantages of celibacy. Look at chapter seven, verse 25. 
Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. What he just means there is Jesus didn't teach explicitly on this. Verse 26, I think that in view of the present distress, so something was going on there, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she's not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord. How to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things. How to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So what is this gift for in the kingdom? Jesus' language is for the sake of the kingdom. Paul says, so that you might not have divided interests. We've talked about the glory of the work of marriage, but marriage brings a lot of work. Your interests become divided. It's good work, but it brings a lot of weight to it. It brings a lot of responsibility. Time and energy and money. You have to buy things. You have to buy things you necessarily wouldn't buy. Like I value simplicity. Like in my head, I value simplicity. With seven people, it's just not a reality. If it were just me, I would probably have one pillow, perhaps two, not 13 pillows. You buy things in marriage. You do things differently. Your interests become divided. And marriage is really hard for a lot of reasons, namely because you have two sinners saying, I do, and we rub like sandpaper there. And there's serious reasons why it's hard. There's petty reasons why it's hard. Rom-coms are written by women. Don't believe him. He will never understand you the way the guys on the movie understand you. Often men have to work to be good listeners. They undervalue small talk. They're usually less appreciative of their new family members as they marry you. You often wish that their level of hygiene was a few more notches above sanitary. And kids, again... Scripture speaks of the blessing of kids, but they're also very hard and your interests become divided. They're expensive and challenging in various ways. Trips to the grocery store become major tests of sanctification. <laughs> Can I get an amen for grocery pickup? <laughs> Traveling becomes a whole new ordeal. In all seriousness, the times where Alicia and I are most most vulnerable to fights are right before vacation. So we just got to realize, all right, this could go bad. Let's, let's, not, let's not go south here and start the vacation on the wrong foot. Because before, when you're single, you would just pack the backpack and roll. Not when you have children. In fact, I took a picture of our last, uh, our last trip. That's the back of our van. <laughs> we were proud of that. It was like Tetris. Like Jenga. 
Sometimes I consider myself a father of five eternal souls. And sometimes I consider myself a professional light switch flipper. Never knew how much of my interest would be divided so that I would have to go into various rooms and turn off the lights with no human beings in them. So the Bible says your interest may not be divided. The single person's free to be anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. The unmarried can be concerned in, a, in another level, on another level about the things of the Lord. The NIV says her aim is to be devoted to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 35 says that the gift of celibacy is to secure undivided devotion to the Lord. There it is. What's the purpose of the gift? To secure undivided devotion to the Lord. The NLT says it this way, paraphrases, I want you to do whatever will help you serve the Lord best with as few distractions as possible. King Jimmy puts it this way, that ye may attend upon the Lord without distraction. The unmarried are able to devote their lives to the work of the kingdom in a focused manner. Freedom to focus on the Lord. Well, what should that look like? Whether you're called to a life of celibacy or if the Lord just has you celibate for a season, Let's consider four ways together, four pursuits. Number one, pursue Christ. Get to know him on a deep level. Increase your knowledge of him. Become biblically literate. Philippians 1, there's a prayer that our love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. A similar prayer in Colossians 1 that we would be filled with the knowledge of his will with all spiritual wisdom and understanding increasing in the knowledge of God. So pursue him, focus your life on him, eliminate triviality. And oh, there is an abundance of triviality knocking at our door every day. Eliminate it, eliminate distraction. Reduce your screen time, renew your minds. Pursue Christ, ensure that there's more godly content entering your mind than worldly content. Secure an undistracted devotion to the Lord a singular commitment. Pursue a walk with him. Pursue holiness. 1 Corinthians 7.34, the unmarried is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. Pursue him, pursue holiness. Fight sin. Repent quickly. You know, sometimes people will tell singles, you know, if you'll just, if you'll just be content enough, if you'll just gain a certain level of contentment, then and only then the Lord will bring you a spouse. This is prosperity theology. It's not true. As if God only provides spouses for people who reach a certain level of sanctification. No. Don't pursue Christ in order to get a spouse. Pursue Christ to get Christ. And don't believe the lie that this, this longing, this discontentment will be fixed by marriage. It will not. And that'll go bad for you and it'll go bad for your spouse. Why? Because spouses aren't saviors. Spouses don't satisfy. You were made for God. So pursue him, Augustine. Our hearts are restless and they're restless until they find their rest in a husband. Nope. They're restless until they find their rest in a wife. No. Our hearts are restless and they're restless until they find their rest in God. So focus on that foundational relationship, pursue Christ. In other words, don't make a relationship an idol. Don't be an idolater. My favorite definition of idolatry is that idolatry is the mistake of asking a gift to be a giver. Marriage, spouse, if you're not called to singleness, it's a gift. 
But to try to make it a giver will end in frustration for you and your spouse. Don't try to make a gift into a giver. You remember what Jesus said to the woman at the well in John 4? She'd been married five times and was working on a sixth. She was searching for something. And Jesus says, I have what you're looking for. Meets her in the heat of the day, dares to talk to her. I have living water. Jesus said, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. So pursue living water. Trust his goodness. He is for you. His grace is sufficient. Trust that he is sovereign. He's in control. He has you where he has you with very intentional purpose. Trust that he's in control and trust that he's for you. I love that song that we sing. I don't remember the name of it, but it's by City Light. It's early on in the song and it says, there is no more for heaven now to give. I wonder if you believe that this morning, saint. There's no more. There is no more for heaven now to give. He's given us all that we need. Romans 8.32. How will not, he's given us his son. How will not also give us all things? In fact, turn there. Turn to Romans 8. We're in 1 Corinthians. Fill back to Romans 8. It's not far. He's given us himself. There's no more for heaven now to give. It is a cosmic impossibility for our God to shortchange you. He's working everything out for your joy. What's your joy? It's your good. What's your good according to this passage? Being like Jesus. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. There he is. That's, he's working all things out right now that you might be more like Jesus. Are you on board with this plan in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers? And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. If you're, if you're prone to whine and complain and think, well, God doesn't have my best in mind, look at these verses, verse 31. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, danger or sword, singleness? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Trust his goodness. Trust his sovereignty. It is a cosmic impossibility that he'll ever shortchange you. He's working all things out, even your current season, for your good. The risen Christ, the victorious Christ, is arranging every atom for your benefit. Romans 8, 28. So don't, don't despair. 
Don't complain, don't whine, but trust his goodness, trust his sovereignty and seek him and seek contentment in him. Like one of the most fruitful singles ever lived, the Apostle Paul, he learned to be content in whatever situation he was in. May your song be that of Frances Ridley Havergal. She's in the 19th century. Probably many of you don't know that name, but many of you have sung some of her hymns. She was single. Uh, although she was pursued many times, she wouldn't compromise with someone who wasn't sold out to Christ. So she said no several times. She had a life theme. My life theme, she would say, is consecration. Listen to her song and may her song be our prayer. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in endless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. It shall be thy royal throne. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. Pursue Christ. Second, pursue purity. If you burn with passion, but you're not yet married, again, next week, we're gonna look at dating and how to find a spouse in a godly way. But you've gotta have self-control if you land here. Premarital sex outside of the bounds is absolutely outside of the bounds of God's will. This week, as I was studying, I'm just looking at various studies and where people are at, I was really discouraged about this. Just sort of a wake-up call, sobered with how not just Christians, not just teens, but specifically evangelical, those that believe the Bible, at least on paper. I just want to share a little bit with you. Among pre, pre, uh, professing evangelicals, again, among Bible-believing supposedly Christians, according to the Survey for Family Growth, major study funded by the CDC in 2019, only 40% of 18 to 29-year-old evangelicals think that fornication is always wrong. Only 40%. Believe that it's always wrong. Premarital sex. Evangelical, 60% say it's only wrong sometimes or not at all. Where are we getting our moral compass from anymore? 35% say cohabitation is acceptable. Only three of 10 evangelical men have remained virgins by age 22. Only three of 10 evangelical singles, men, by 22. According to the General Social Survey, this was a decade-long study, ended in 2018, 86% of single, this study called us fundamentalists, not evangelicals, but fundamentalists, 86% of single female fundamentalists and 82% of single male fundamentalists had had at least one sexual partner since they turned 18. 86%, 82%. We're in a different day. We've got work to do. And so if you land and you're burning with passion, you're not married yet, you need to pursue purity. Just listen to God's word about how serious it is. Ephesians 5, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetous must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Not even named. 
First Thess 4, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. What's God's will for you? Do you avoid this? Why? Because you know God, unlike them. 1 Corinthians 6, flee from sexual immorality. You're not your own. You're bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Pursue purity. And listen, friends, pornography is the true epidemic in our day. So if you, if you are struggling with pornography, this needs to be your number one priority, is getting a handle on this. This church is filled with people who have gained victory. It's the new drug, and it has to be fought with everything that you are. By the way, parents, just dropped a bomb on your children. Sorry about that. There is, uh, there's really good resources, actually secular resources, called Good Pictures, Bad Pictures. One for like three to six-year-olds. There's one for like six to 12-year-olds that talk about it. It's a good way to introduce your kids to something that will come to them if it hadn't already. I don't know that there's anything that will hinder spiritual fruitfulness and effectiveness like pornography. And so if you're struggling there, make killing that your number one priority. Pursue Christ, pursue purity. Number three, pursue the family of God. You know, one of the advantages of the single life is less distraction, right? Interests are less divided. More time to serve Jesus by serving the church. That really is what it means to serve Jesus, is to serve his body. And we're all busy, every one of us in America today, but we need to stop and reflect on our lives and stop and ask, what is my life busy with? How am I using my free time? Ensure that you have margin and use that margin for the body of Christ. I'm so thankful for how many of our singles are doing just that. I think about my mom. She parents divorced when I was 12 and my mom for a lot, most of that time has used her singleness well for the body of Christ. Think about the, the people last week. It's pretty hard for people who are married to get away for a week. Chris Mathis was able to go due to his schedule, but we also had Dr. Morris and Lisa, Ashley, Laurie, giving up a week to serve students at camp. The Apostle Paul fruitful, unmarried. Think of Mary Martha, Mary Magdalene, Anna the widow, Jesus. You know, Jesus never married and he was the perfectly complete human being. This gift is not to be used on ourselves. It's to be used for others. In fact, everywhere the apostle Paul uses that word gift, it's something given by God to be used to edify brothers and sisters in Christ. made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Well, why does Jesus use this terminology of eunuch? There are other ways he could have made his point. Why eunuch? No less than five times in these verses. Actually, it doesn't come through in every English translation, but eunuch, eunuch, made themselves eunuch. Well, I think it's intentional. Jesus is always intentional, but I think it's because he's thinking of a passage in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 56. I'd like for you to turn there, just basically open your Bible right in the middle. You're probably gonna land near Isaiah. If you land in the Psalms, flip to the right a little bit. And Isaiah 40 and following is all about the promise of the coming kingdom. So here we are in chapter 56, talking about the coming new covenant, the coming kingdom and what it's gonna be like. Isaiah chapter 56, 1 to 7. Thus says the Lord, 
keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who's joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree. You know, because in the law, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse one, eunuchs were actually forbidden from coming to the temple. In other words, if you were a eunuch, you couldn't come worship with the people of God. Notice what Isaiah is prophesying. God's prophesying through Isaiah. For soon, there's a day coming. Let not the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree. Verse four, for thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. You won't be forbidden from my house. You're gonna have a monument and a name better than physical family. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. There's a coming day, he says, in the new covenant when the kingdom comes that all nations will come. There'll be foreigners, Gentiles will join themselves to the Lord, but not only Gentiles, eunuchs will join themselves to the Lord and they won't be a dry tree anymore. In fact, they will have a better monument and a better name, better than sons and daughters, an everlasting name. What is that? It's spiritual offspring. It's the family of God. It's the church. In the old covenant, it was really hard for eunuchs. It was really hard for singles who weren't eunuchs. That all changes, Isaiah says, in the new covenant. Singles won't be looked down like it happened sometimes in the old covenant. But in the new covenant, in fact, he will bestow them with blessings better. Better than a family, better than sons and daughters, better than marriage and children, the family of God, spiritual offspring. There is a family that transcends the nuclear family, and that's the family of God. You remember how often Jesus redefines family? We've seen it multiple times in Matthew. Let me just look at one, Matthew chapter 12. He does it three or four times. Matthew 12, 48 says this, stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here, are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus looks at his people, looks at the family of God and says, these are my family. Listen to the way Mark puts it in chapter 10, verse 28. Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything, we followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father, family or children, or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Those who are in Christ sometimes might lose family, but ultimately they gain family 100 folds. The church is our primary family. And of course, remember the purpose of marriage. Why does marriage exist? 
It exists to point to Christ and the church. Marriage is an earthly illustration of an eternal reality. In the age to come, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. So marriage is a signpost. Marriage is a type. Marriage is a shadow. Marriage is not ultimate. Marriage is penultimate. Christ and his church are ultimate. So pursue the family of God. Pursue your forever family. And finally, fourth, briefly, pursue the mission of God. Singles are often less encumbered. You have more freedom to pursue the nation. So we think about the mission of the church. The primary way that God grows his church is through Christian family. But every Christian is called to go and reach the unreached. All of us, to get the gospel out, to advance and promote the gospel. Those of us who are in families, we get sucked in, don't we? Again, rightly so. It's glorious work. But there's this centripetal force that draws our time and energy into the center of these commitments. And singleness enables you to go out. It enables you to form a broader network of relationships. And so, dear saint who's single at least now, leverage your life for the advancement of the gospel. I'm going to point you to two websites. I encourage you to pray about it and poke around two websites. One is IMB, International Mission Board, imb.org. There's various opportunities depending on desire and stage of life. Lots of opportunities that make it honestly quite easy to get places. And then Reaching and Teaching International Ministries, rtim.org. Very healthy, does a lot of different things actually. And if you're a step along in the faith, you can actually go and teach those that aren't. There's lots of options on both, imb.org, rtim.org. Pursue the mission of God. Pursue Christ, pursue purity, pursue your forever family, and pursue the nations. Let's pray.